In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Welcome to episode 21 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister, tongue twister, and Helen Houston. And I'm Susan Brown. In this episode, we shall be covering the following topics. Helen, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to be talking about Scottish textiles. Excellent. Liz? Well, I'm going to be talking about the national animal of Scotland, which, believe it or not, is the unicorn. And I'll throw in a little sprinkle of pink fairy dust just for good measure. (laughs) Well, your fairy dust can make it up onto my hills because I'm going to be talking about the hills called Munro's. So who's going to start us off tonight? Why don't I do Scottish textiles? Scotland has a rich and diverse textile heritage from weaving and sewing in the home to full-scale mechanised factory textile production. The Scottish textile industry has been at the forefront of high-value manufacturing and global exporting since as far back as the 1700s. And the industry today is flexible, innovative and market-driven. World-leading brands across fashion, interiors and technical textiles all view Scotland as the supplier of choice. And Scottish textile exports are worth £360 million, 1.1% of Scotland's total international exports in 2018. And the sector exports to over 150 countries with Scottish quality and authenticity at the core of industry proposition. Scottish textiles can be found all around the world, from Sydney Opera House to luxury Singapore hotels, from surgical gowns to artificial grass, from Milan catwalk to premier airports and from Hollywood film sets to Formula One cars. Johnson's of Elgin, a well-known name that you might know, has been creating the finest woolen and cashmere cloth since 1797, and it brings together the skills of Scottish craftspeople and generations of the herding communities from Mongolia, China, Afghanistan, Australia and Peru. The Borders region is a rightly famed for the creation of first-class fabrics, woolens and tweeds. Gallus Shields soon became known throughout the world as a producer of checked cloth called Shepherd's Checks or Shepherd's Plaid, but this was very soon christened Tweed. From such humble beginnings, the Scottish Borders has built a global reputation for quality fabric and design. 
Border textile manufacturers are still at the centre of an international network, importing the finest raw materials from across the globe and exporting the finished fabrics and cloth to the fashion capitals of the world. Harriet Watt University's world-class School of Textile and Design is in Gala Shields, and it's not only in traditional materials where its expertise lies. The college is also a leader in the emerging fields of smart, protective and waterproof fabrics. Although Many of the former family-run firms are now owned by multinational brands or have exclusive supply deals with top fashion houses. They still adhere to the same high-quality standards of design, manufacturing, production that made their names a byword for quality. And there's an organisation called Textile Scotland, which is passionate about the design and manufacturing of Scottish textiles. Their website includes a textile showcase for a vast range of textile companies who make and manufacture fashion, accessories, interiors and technical textiles products in Scotland. And these companies range from one-man bands operating from their own homes to big organisations like Johnson's of Elgin. And they've also created a textile tourist trail to help you find the mills, studios and visitor centres as you take your wanders around Scotland. Then along came Covid and despite all these challenges, the industry turned its attention to what it can do for the community. From making masks to providing scrubs free of charge for hospitals, health centres and care homes, every company looked to do what it could do to help. The Scottish textile sector is focused on delivering high-value, high-end margin products that contribute significantly to the exports. And it also has a strong research and development activity. Developing countries like India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Thailand are textile manufacturing havens for the developed nations. Their low-cost production in these countries has made it difficult for Scotland to compete on cost. But the transformation of the traditional textile from the few drab colours to an array of hues, fusion of traditional methods of manufacturing with modern-day technology and accepting the change in demand have made the world take note once again of Scottish textiles. The industry has left an indelible mark on global textile through its achievements in various streams and the future of textile plans continue to keep the world intrigued and curious. And one name you'll all be familiar with is Harris Tweed, and that can only be, by law, manufactured in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. The 1993 Harris Tweed Act forever tied production of this unique hand-woven cloth to these islands and placed its iconic orb trademark in the guardianship of the Harris Tweed Authority. The cloth, which is available in a variety of weights and widths, must be hand-woven from 100% pure new wool at the home of the weaver. Just three mills, a small number of independent producers and an army of less than 100 highly skilled weaving craftsmen and women produces high quality cloth. So Susan and Liz, like me, are you often asked about Scottish textiles by your tour members? Definitely, in particular cashmere. And of course, people wonder, well, why on earth is Scotland associated with cashmere? Because it comes from a goat and we don't have cashmere goats here. But of course, it's the quality of our water. We already had the skills and the technological know-how in woolen industry. But when the world changed to softer, more expensive types of wool, Scotland got in on the act. And because of the lovely soft water, if you go to visit one of these textile mills, you never cease to be amazed by how the fabric 
plastics come out after the manufacture, they're coarse and they don't look anything special. But when they're washed and dried in special dryers, then they immediately get that beautiful fluffy cashmere touch. Yes, and that's one of the names, Johnson's. That's where they have just used the skills developed over years and years. And their relationship with the herds people in Mongolia and China is such that I understand the, the cashmere is paid for before it is shipped to Scotland. So it's a the real fair trade going on. Yes, and of course, cashmere's got four times the thermal value of wool. I always have cashmere hat, scarf and gloves. It was interesting, I was at a craft fair in Falkland just before Christmas and there was a lady there with her stall selling cashmere hats and cashmere gloves and they were all made out of discarded cashmere jumpers that she used that and recycled them into using the pure cashmere and she made beautiful stuff and even some of the little heart-shaped things that she had at the time to hang on Christmas trees was stuffed with the little bits of cashmere that she could not sew into anything else. What a great idea. Absolutely. And of course, the uniform of the Scottish tourist guide is Harris Tweed. I think we keep the industry boy in yeah. alone. <laughs> Never mind the uniform. I've got Harris Tweed sofa, chairs. Uh-huh. I've got oh. about 10 Harris Tweed handbags. Uh, yes, yeah, a bit of a Harris Tweed obsession going on in this house. Well, Harris Tweed sofa or a Harris Tweed chair is my dream, Susan. I'll get it one day. <laughs> They're very comfortable. They're fantastic. Hard wearing as well. Yeah. I was interested there, Helen, how you as well as talking about cashmere and Harris Tweed, the sort of traditional textiles of Scotland, you introduced the smart textiles because that is a huge growth area. When people think of smart textiles, what we're talking about is fabrics that can breathe with you, fabrics that you can use to treat burns. Uh, So, you know, there's a a huge growth industry in the technological side. Yeah, it's good to know that the Gala Shields, part of Harriet Watt University, the School of Textile Design, is every bit as expert in that nowadays as they are in the traditional methods. And also you can have there are special programs where you can go down there and they can design your own tartan for you. you know, on on uh, digital programs you can pick the colours, pick the weft and weave and um, have your tartan produced. And then you have to register it with the, the um what is it called? Where you register Scottish Tartans Authority. That's the one. Yeah anybody can have their own tartan. Even Shrek's got his own tartan. That's right. And we've got the iron brew tartan as well. And the Outlander tartan of course. <laughs> I know, it's great. I think Scotland's textile sector has really stepped up to the plate in regards moving forward with what people are wanting. They're now not saying, this is traditional, this is what you're getting. They're saying, let's see how we can work with you to put some beautiful textiles into the fashion industry. Yeah, but it's still a successful industry in Scotland. So, well, I think it's probably time to move on. And which one of you ladies is going next with your little topic? I think I'll follow on because when you mention Scotland, I think most people will associate things like tartan fabrics, plaid, cashmere, Harris tweed with Scotland. But perhaps before you visited Scotland, you might not associate the country with our national animal. Now, if you come to Scotland and you start to wander around, wherever you go, you're sure to notice our obsession with the most mysterious and enchanting of creatures, the unicorn. You can look out for them sitting on the top pillar of a market cross, 
on plaques, on fountains. If you look carefully, you can even spot them hiding amongst the Victorian wood carvings in St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. They're everywhere. They've been linked to Scotland for centuries. And as I was telling my daughter tonight that I was doing this as my topic, she said, but why? And nobody really knows why the unicorn is linked to Scotland. The Scots are famed for their love of myths, superstitions, legends. So perhaps it's fitting that our national animal is a mythical beast. Perhaps it's the qualities that we associate with it. Proud, fiercely independent, difficult to capture or conquer. Ideals that any self-respecting Scot would aspire to. Perhaps it's the fact that in folklore, the lion and the unicorn are bitter enemies, locked in perpetual battle for the title King of Beasts. The English just happened to have adopted the lion as their heraldic animal 100 years before Robert III, grandson of good old King Robert the Bruce, adopted it as our, our national animal in the late 1300s. Like this mythical beast, Scots would reign unconquered. Freedom! Since the 13th century, the Scottish Royal Arms traditionally had two unicorns supporting a shield. But with the Union of Crowns in 1603, King James VI of Scotland replaced the unicorn on the left-hand side with a lion to demonstrate his authority over the United Countries. To this day, the Royal Coat of Arms of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland still has the English lion on the left and the Scottish unicorn on the right, while the Royal Arms of Scotland still have them reversed. Stories and legends surrounding the unicorn go about as far back as the history of the human race. They were worshipped by the ancient Babylonians and they can be seen in the drawings and writings of many different cultures around the world. Persians, Romans, Greek philosophers, Jewish scholars all describe this white horse-like creature with a single spiralling horn growing out of its forehead. First mentioned in India in 400 BC, by the 6th century it was believed that a unicorn would jump from a cliff rather than allow itself to be caught, landing on the tip of its horn to protect itself from injury. An ancient Tibetan proverb states, a wise man never plays leapfrog with a unicorn. (laughs) I'll leave you to ponder that for a moment. (laughs) Ouch! During the Middle Ages, the unicorn became strongly associated with the virtues of purity, healing and nurturing, and became a popular symbol in Christian art. Around this time, powdered unicorn horn, known as alicorn, became popular for healing illness and disease and detecting poison. It's said that Mary, Queen of Scots, brought a piece of unicorn horn with her when she returned from France and would dip it into her food before she ate to purify her food and protect her from poisoning. It's interesting to note as you're out and about unicorn spotting across Scotland that the Scottish unicorns are always shown with gold chains round their neck and wrapped around their body. In mythology, a free unicorn was considered to be an extremely dangerous beast, the most powerful of animals. The crown on their heads and the gold chains entrapping them symbolised the power of the Scottish monarchs and their divine right to rule. It was said that only the king or a humble virgin could tame this fiercest of creatures. Perhaps it was because of the strong association with the Virgin Mary. One specific legend states that this otherwise fleet-footed and freedom-loving creature would be so enraptured by the purity and innocence of the noble virgin that it would go to her willingly and fall asleep with its head in her lap, causing it to be captured. Although today we consider them to be mythical animals, they were believed to be real right up to the end of the 19th century. Given the fact that they were written about all over the world and by so many different cultures, you have to ask yourself the question, are they really mythical or did they once exist and are now extinct? 
A popular children's legend states that the unicorn was too proud to board Noah's Ark, and as a result, they all drowned in the flood, which is why they're extinct today. It seems that they didn't get the memo about the 2.30 departure. (laughs) So, ladies, discussing your favourite unicorns, and I did not touch on the most famous of all unicorns because Stirling Castle is just a unicorn hunter's dream. So I left that for the Daughter of the Rock. (laughs) Well, that's interesting because you, you said, is it a mythical creature? Do they exist? Well, I can tell you that a couple of years ago, I took my grandchildren to Stirling Castle and we saw the real unicorn horn. One of the costumed guides was standing there with the proper real unicorn horn. And of course, he was there because in Stirling Castle, James IV lives, as you said, it was a medicinal and he used to have it grated into his food just for healing powers and preventative powers. But the unicorn does exist. And of course, girls, you know the tapestries in the Royal Palace, the beautiful tapestries, the unicorn hunt, just absolutely stunning. And for some of you listening to this, you might know the story because they were based on tapestries in Cloister Museum in New York. The originals are there. It's just beautiful. Yes, unicorns exist, like the Loch Ness Monster. And if you go there, they're all over the roof line of the great chapel built by James IV because James IV was around at the time of chivalry, knights jousting for the honours of their female supporters. The unicorn is associated with chivalry, so that's probably why there are so many of them there in Stirling Castle. Interesting you told the story about the chains and the slipped crown. If you look at the roof of the Great Hall, the unicorn has the crown round his neck and the chains round there. One of the stories related to that is the chains are that James IV wore horse hair and chains to remind him of the part that he may have played in his father's assassination. It's like a penance. And the unicorn was up there to remind him of that. So what's your favourite unicorn, Susan? Oh, I like them all. Actually, my favourite unicorn is the one that comes in a blow-up and you can sit in it like a rubber ring in the lovely hot waters of Bermuda. That sounds fabulous. (laughs) I thought you would have said something relating to Outlander, like the unicorn that sits on top of the pillar on the Market Cross in Kouris, which was used as one of the filming locations. I did think about any of the unicorns on the Market Pillars, of course, denoting that it is a royal borough and has the right to trade. So moving on, moving on. Susan, inject a little bit of energy energy into these discussions this evening. Energy? Well, you need a lot of energy to do what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about Monroe's, Corbett's, Graham's, Donald's and Marilyn's. Wow. Any idea what I'm talking about, ladies? I love the little Marilyn's, yep. That's what I'm reduced to now, the Marilyn's. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, named after Marilyn Monroe, no less. An ironic contrast by Alan Dawson. And Marilyn's are hills that have a prominence of at least 150 metres or 490 feet, regardless of their absolute height. And he's put together a list of these hills. 1,217 in Scotland. Wow. 176 in England. 158 in Wales and 454 in Ireland. Is that just the Marilyns? That's just the Marilyns. We started at the bottom and going up. But if I go back to the top and come down. So, Monroes. Monroes are hills or we might call them mountains, but I know in some countries this height is really not a mountain. But size is all relative. Um, They are hills or mountains over 3,000 feet. And the list was originally compiled by Sir Hugh Monroe. He created Monroes row tables for the Scottish Mountaineering Club in 1891. And he originally came up with 
283 summits or separate mountains and 255 subsidiary tops. That was the originals. These were reviewed most recently in August last year in 2020 and it was reduced to 282 Munros and reduced to 227 subsidiary tops. Now, the list caused a stir back in 1891 because people thought there was only about 30 mountains over 3,000 feet. So it was quite interesting. First person to do them all was the Reverend Robertson and he did it in 1901. Poor old Sir Hugh Munro died before he got a chance to complete them all. After Munro's death, the Scottish Mountaineering Club took it on to revise and update. So it's quite a lot and people like to do them all. And once you've done them all, you're called a completer. C-O-M-P-L-E-A. T-E-R. And as at the 2nd of July in 2020, there were 6,768 official completers, which is quite impressive. It takes a long time to get around those. However, some people have tried to do it really quickly. And the fastest continuous round was done September last year by Donnie Campbell. It took him 32 days. Wow. My goodness. So that's the hills over 3,000 feet. However, between 2,500 and 2,999 feet, with at least five 500 foot of descent on all sides, you've got mountains called Corbett's. The list was put together by a gentleman by the name of John Rook Corbett in the 1920s. And he was a Bristol-based climber, but again, a member of the Scottish Mountaineering Club. And he found that there was 22, mainly in areas without Munro's, so Moydart, Ardgower, Southern Uplands, Arran, Dura, Rum, Harris. So that's quite a good size. But hey, we like to stratify everything. So between 2,000 feet and 2,499, we've got the Grahams. And again, Alan Dawson, the man who did the Marilyns, came up with the Grahams. He originally called them the Elsies, <laughs> but he later changed them to Grahams after the late Fiona Graham, who also compiled the list at the same time. So that was quite nice. Of him. There's 221 of those. It would seem to have a lot more kudos <laughs> well, <laughs> to yes. do a, the Graham rather than the Elsie. And the only one I didn't know about, actually, was the Donalds. And these are mountains in lowland Scotland over 2,000 feet with a 98 foot drop all round. What do you think the surname of the guy was that pulled this list together? MacDonald. No, just Donald. Percy Donald. And he found 140 of those comprising 89 mountains, well 2,000 feet of the mountain, and 51 tops. So there you go. Of course, the most famous of all of these hills or mountains is the mountain called Ben Nevis at 4,411 feet. It's the tallest in the whole of the UK. That translates to 1,345 metres. It's the one that everybody likes to climb and they've got a couple of different routes up there. Have you done Ben Nevis at all, ladies? I've actually been to the top, but a long time ago, I got to the top of Ben Nevis. I figured you would, Helen. What about you, Liz? Have you done any Munros or any of the I've others? done lots of Munros, but I haven't done Ben Nevis, even although my ancestors on my mum's side came from Fort William. I've never done that one. Of course, there are so many different routes up to the top of Ben Nevis, mm. and some of them really, really challenging that people get into a lot of trouble on, particularly yeah. in winter. So what's been your favourite Munro then, Liz? Well, living in the Cairngorms, we've got a high proportion of Munro in the Cairngorms here, so Breiriach and these people who you know challenge themselves to tick them off one by one are called Monroe baggers. I think in order to be a genuine Monroe bagger, have you not got to start at the bottom, of the sea level of each peak? You can't, you know, when you've got different tops, 
you can't just hop from one Munro to another Munro across the top. You've got to come back down to the bottom and go back up again. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought, because there's a couple I've done between two and four, you kind of get up, but then you drop so much and then you go back up again. That's right. But I think a genuine Munro bagger has got to come right back down to the bottom and then climb the second one from the bottom. Okay. Well, I was about to say I've done about 25, but you might have just negated a few of them. I think if you're a serious Munro bagger, you would do that. But I think if you're enjoying it. My stepson's completed the whole lot, but he's done that over a lot of years as a hill walker who enjoys being out in the hills and just coincidentally ticked off the Munros. And of course they incorporate them into other endurance travels like Ironman and Half Ironman. My daughter and her friends did one called the Kindrochet Challenge, which is an endurance event. So you start off by swimming a mile open water swimming across Loch Tay and then you go on a run which took in seven, I think it was seven peaks of which four of them were Monroe's and there were descents as well as climbs and then when you got to the top it was a kayak up the whole length of Loch Tay and finishes up with a cycle round the circumference which is 27 miles. It stuck on my mind 11 hours 45 oh, minutes. I think the easiest one I think I've probably ever done is Bucholet of Beg. That's just as you drop down towards Glencoe because you start at such a height so get your bonus whereas I mean I've not done the really hard ones. Ben Lomond you kind of pretty much start at sea level Although that's, you know, that's one that Sam Hewen's done. I know a lot of Outlander fans are following him and I seem to remember one of his, well, one of his early social media posts was about doing Ben Lomond just as Outlander was being filmed. So people go, oh, we need to go and do Ben Lomond. And it's called Beacon Mountain because the views from the top are so fabulous because it's just um, the whole of central Scotland at your feet. Don't tell me, Liz, you can see Stirling from there. The daughter of the rock will be happy. Of course you can. The rivalry that I love as well is about which are the island Monroes because Mull is now technically the only island with a Monroe, Ben Moore. Now there's lots of Monroes on Sky. But Sky is technically attached to the mainland by a bridge now. So the people on Mull say, well, you're not a real island anymore. So we're the only island with a Monroe. So what are the chances of either of you doing one in lockdown then? Very little chance. But I have to say that you, know, you gave the heights of the Monroes, and I'm sure to some of our listeners that will seem tiddly, really small, but one of the things about the Scottish mountains is that they are technically very, very difficult, very challenging. And many of the mountaineers from Europe and even America who are used to climbing really high mountains come to hone their skills on places like the Bucoletives and Glencoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course Sky, because the Coolins are very technically challenging because of this crumbly rock. But no matter where you go, it's about the beautiful scenery yeah. wherever you go. Exactly. If it's a cloudy day, not interested. Well, ladies, I think it's time to move on to our word of the week. Liz, we'll start with you. Well, following on from our Burns episode, we talked about wee sleek it, coorous, timorous beastie. And I suppose that you could call the unicorn a big beastie, a big beast. Whenever we use it as a colloquialism, as we use it affectionately, or as we use it to describe a small thing, we add IE at the end of it. So wee beastie. Perfect, Helen. Well, I'm just thinking that these weavers sitting in their homes with their looms, at the end of the day, they'd be fair wabbit, very tired, fair wabbit, W-A-B-B-I-T, very tired. And Susan? So my word of the week, doolally. So if someone's (laughs) going doolally, they're kind of losing it a little bit. So thank you, everybody, for your time. And we'll talk to you all next week. 
And I just remembered there, but we were talking about textiles. And if anybody was listening in for the people who were at Helen's virtual tour, she did Andrew Carnegie's Dunfermline. And we were talking about Dunfermline's prowess in the making of linen. And then when that industry began to decline, how they turned to silk and were actually responsible for making the silk for the Queen's gown and, and coronation dress. So those are important textiles as well. So a good plug for an excellent virtual tour from Helen. And Susan, you've got one coming up next week. Yes, I've got one on Thursday the 11th of February at 8 o'clock and I'll be taking you on a little trip to St Kilda Islands on the Edge a double UNESCO World Heritage Site 40 nautical miles off the Outer Hebrides to the west on the west coast of Scotland so hopefully you can make that drop us an email to scottishblatherspodcast at gmail.com to book and it costs £15 per device hope to see you there so you'll still have time after this episode goes out yep exactly And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.